Over the last 50 years, the church in America has slowly entered a crisis moment. As secular culture has swept the landscape with waves of doubt and skepticism, the Western world has moved from a place of faith, where that was sort of the default heart posture, to a place of cynicism. Now in the Western world, to have uh, even a basic faith in God is difficult, let alone a vibrant relationship with Jesus. New paradigms and ideologies have arisen. That is to say, uh, new ways of thinking about the world. What does it mean to be human? Where did life come from? What is life all about? Uh, have come in and, and undermined the atmosphere of faith that was previously present. Uh, church attendance has been on the decline for decades and already declining numbers plummeted over the last two years during the pandemic. The Western church, uh, which was already sort of losing its cultural footing, is now in danger of collapse. But out of this crisis, fresh vision is being born and tough questions are being asked. Wait a second, what is the church? What is the point of the church? What is she supposed to be? in the world. And it's forcing followers of Jesus to kind of go back and re-examine scripture and seek God again uh, for a fresh renewal. First of all, in the church, but really with an eye for the culture itself. Our hope, our prayer, the cry of our hearts is that God would ultimately bring renewal and revival to a dying and faithless culture. But so often that begins with the church. It starts in here. The numbers are in, the writing is on the wall. Short of revival or renewal within our church and culture, particularly among young people, the Western church will not survive. If we continue at the rate that we're going, in the declining numbers that we are. In fact, several studies have already come out and said the Western church is beyond the point of return. It, it's past the point of no return. It cannot recover from the declines that it has suffered over the last few decades and over the last few years. A long, slow death is inevitable as waves of secularism wash over the landscape, battering what is left of the church. Every fall since we planted the church, we've started our church calendar year together in September, and we've started with what we call the vision series. Every year, we've just turned five right this weekend, this Sunday is, is and last. Five years for us, which we're excited about. But every single fall for the last five years, we've started in September and we've started with the vision series, which is all about who we are and where we're headed in the year to come. But this year is going to be a little different. Rather than taking three or four weeks to talk about our commitment to discipleship and small groups and, and how we plan to implement that over the year to come, instead, we're going to take more like eight to ten weeks and we're going to talk about the church. And more specifically, we're going to talk about the church of the future 
uh, the church that can survive and even thrive in the secular age, the church that can uh, withstand the waves of doubt and cynicism and come out on the other side ready to usher in this, the revival that our culture needs so badly. What does it look like to be a vibrant and resilient church? What does it look like to see restoration in the Western world and in the Western church in particular? Those are the questions that we're going to be wrestling with in the weeks and months ahead. But we're going to start right here in Romans 7, uh, verse 1. If you have your Bibles open at the start of the chapter, this is what Paul says. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you uh, in a very unique uh, moment, not just in our lifetimes, but arguably in the trajectory of the Western world. We come to you in a unique moment in time. We surrender to you as your disciples. We say, Jesus, we want you to have all of us. We hear the call uh, to die to ourselves, to pick up our cross in, in a pleasure-seeking culture and, and to follow after you. And yet even as we do that, Jesus, we, we just want to do it well. We want to do it in a way that is effective. We want to do it in a way um, that is almost uh, inviting, intoxicating to the world around us that, that has fallen for other ide ideologies and, and, and paradigms, a world that is lost in the true sense of the word. Would you start with us, Jesus? Would you renew something in us? Would you light a fire in our hearts this morning that's going to burn for you and your kingdom and burn for the lost who are all around us, who need that invitation, who need to know who you are? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church of Jesus, the community of his disciples, is designed to be a powerful and almost irresistible force on earth. Uh, despite being full of weak and flawed people, that's you and me, Despite having to contend or fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
uh, th- this humble, spirit-filled, surrendered group of people, which can look so weak in the eyes of the world, is told that the gates of hell will not prevail against them, that they share in the very authority and power of Jesus on earth, and that they will do greater things than he did. But of all the things that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God, the world, the flesh, the devil, crafty paradigms and ideologies, persecution, and the blatant and self-centered skepticism of our day. Perhaps the thing that has most hindered the kingdom over the last 2,000 years is legalism. It has stifled and distracted not just individuals, but entire communities or churches, and even networks and denominations full of many hundreds of churches. It smothers the church. It quenches the spirit and it moves individuals from a state of wonder and awe to an experience of failure and condemnation. If the world, the flesh, and the devil oppose the gospel directly, blatantly, uh, the gospel and the kingdom have a curious way of moving forward in spite of those things sometimes even because of those things. They continue to advance. In fact, if you study church history in the early years of the church that we get a glimpse of in the book of Acts and scripture and and the letters that Paul is writing, uh, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, there was intense persecution across the Roman Empire. Christianity as we understand it today was illegal. It was outlawed. If you practiced Christianity in the way that we are doing this morning, uh, you could be imprisoned or executed for what you had done. And thousands, in fact, many historians estimate millions of people across the empire suffered that fate. And yet what we see in church history is that the more they executed people for faith in Jesus, the more faith in Jesus spread like wildfire across the Roman world. It was almost as if they were related. The harder the persecution hit, the more the faith spread in a very harsh environment. Uh, Direct opposition and persecution, admittedly, that's not fun for us as followers of Jesus, okay? We don't like pray for that, desire that, and yet it doesn't stop the gospel from advancing either. Instead, Satan figured out very early on that the best way to slow or halt the the advance of the kingdom was through an inside job. Get into the church, blur their vision of the radical grace of God. Cause them to misunderstand or misreceive the gospel. And the job is done. If you can put out the fire in the church, the culture around it remains unchanged. And one of his schemes or tactics is simply that, to turn us from the radical grace of God and to turn us to a rule-based religion. 
toward a dull and legalistic version of Christianity. And believe it or not, that proved effective in the first century, and it still proves itself effective today. And we see it right here in Romans 7, verse 1. Paul opens that chapter by saying, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. And there's so much of this in Paul's letters. The, Do you not know? Don't be taken captive. Have you not noticed? Did I not spell out the gospel clearly enough? Begging, pleading in his letters with the Colossians, with the Galatians, with the Romans. On and on it goes. Remember that these communities uh, are hidden. They're hidden away in homes. Sometimes they gather publicly in temple courts, but, it, but they're risking their lives in doing that. Many of them are being dragged away, imprisoned, executed, and, and dragged into Roman stadiums, ripped in half, fed to lions, lit on fire in Caesar's courtyard. This is what they're up against. But notice in his letters, curiously, he does not spend the bulk of his letter telling them to be bold and courageous, telling them to stand strong in the face of persecution lest the gospel disappear on earth. He's not worried about that. Usually in his letters, there's like a few verses or a paragraph or at best a chapter. But that's not what Paul's worrying about. Instead, he spends his time defending the gospel of grace. Over and over again in his letters to a persecuted people, he says, this is what what we need to protect. This is what we need to defend. If there's a fire burning in the church, it's going to spread. I'm not worried about that. But this is what can put the fire out. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Was it so easy for you to drift from the scandalous, radical gospel that I gave you? when I was with you. If we turn from that radical gospel, if we fail to appreciate, receive, celebrate the fullness of what was accomplished on the cross, and we turn to a rule-based religion, that, that is the death of the church. It only takes the slightest opposition, and, and those churches will crumble and fall apart. This is what's burning in Paul's heart. He knows, hey, persecution and execution will not stop the kingdom from advancing. In fact, I've seen it do the opposite. But what we need to defend is the radical grace embedded in the gospel. And so he spells it out in his letters over and over again. He says, you know about the law and you know the temptation, especially among religious human beings. Our temptation is to turn to the law, to place ourselves under the law. And so in each of his letters, Paul rails against this mentality and he rails against the law. He says, we all know the law. Well, in their culture, they did. Maybe less so in ours. But in their culture, he's saying, you all know the law and it's on display and it's prevalent and it's well known. But, but the law did not, cannot impart life. You have to understand that. It cannot impart life. It cannot transform your inner man or inner woman to make you more like Jesus. It cannot give you power to see the kingdom of God advance. It's just there to tell you what sin is. In human ignorance, we don't know. There's a little bit. There's fragments left in our conscience. 
to kind of say, ooh, that doesn't feel right. Oh, I think that's wrong. That's, that, oh, I think that's right. But the law comes along and says very clearly from God, this is wrong, this is right, this is sin, this is not sin. There's value in that. But the value is not in imparting life. And, and it cannot make you more like Jesus. And, and so Paul goes on again and again. He said, the, the law was never meant to fix us. It can't do that. The, the human condition is worse than that. We, we need something more than law. Law's not going to get the job done. It won't bring us to life. In fact, Paul describes it as a yoke of slavery. The, the law is great. It's, it's righteous and good and from God and perfect, but you mix that with the broken human spirit, it becomes a yoke of slavery over your life. It didn't bring life. It didn't bear fruit. We didn't bear fruit under the law, and we were stuck there. We couldn't erase the law. We couldn't ignore it and throw it off ourselves. In fact, in, in, fact, in, in, fact, in Romans 7, uh, that we just read this morning, Paul compares it to a marriage. He says, you were, you were married to that. Imagine that the law was your husband. Kind of this mean, abusive, overbearing, but correct husband. And, you're, and, and it's not like today where you can just say, hey, I'm not happy, I'm out. That's this sort of cultural construct. Back then, no, no, no. You, until, until death do you part. And the law isn't going to die. But Paul sets it up that way. He says, you're married to the law. Only death can release you from that law. And the good news is that you died. That in Jesus, you were bound to him. You died a death with him. Your old self was put to death. And when that death happened, whether you were four years old or 40 years old, when you surrendered your life to Jesus and that death happened, boom, you were released. You were released from the law. That was your only way out. And so he says this. He says, this is verse 4 that we read this morning. He says, so, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another or be remarried in a sense to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. It says, you're released from that, you died, you're remarried, now you're going to bear fruit. For in that old marriage in the realm of the flesh, the law only aroused our sinful passions. He says, you bore fruit for death in your old life, but now by dying to what bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. New husband, new ability to bear fruit, new way of serving God, not under the law. You're free in the spirit. It's the new way of the spirit, not the old way of the law. And so Paul is trying to impress within the church, within the persecuted church. He's saying, hey, you're free. You're free from the law. You're free from condemnation. You're free from the shame that came along with that. You're bound to Christ. You have a new husband, and you're bound so closely to him that there's a real sense in which the two have become one, that now what's true of Jesus is true of you. 
all of his righteousness and goodness and joy and peace and the way he lived his life on earth, that's all, we often say that's credited to your account. That's you now. And, And so now when you, just imagine for a second the joy that the Father has when he looks at Jesus whether it was when he was here on earth or at his right hand in heaven, just when he, when he gazes upon Jesus, just the incredible joy in the Father heart of God. Oh, it just stirs this rejoice. This is my son and who I'm well pleased. Now you, you have to reckon in your mind that that's how God gazes on you. When God the Father looks at you, right now, and he gazes on you, it's that same sense of joy. It's that same sense of delight. Oh, that's my son, that's my, that's my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Do we believe that? It's hard to grasp, isn't it? Saying that's how radical the gospel is, that you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, and it's a Your sin is now on the cross and his righteousness, that's in you. This incredible change and transformation has happened. When you draw near to to God in prayer, say, Lord, I want to be close to you right now. He receives you like the way he would receive Jesus. It's as if he sees Jesus in your face, smells Jesus, spiritually speaking. So you draw near to him. This is my son, this is my daughter. You're wrapped up in that. And and so within the radical grace of God, you're no longer under the law. You don't have to follow the law. You don't have to earn anything. Whatever you think almost subconsciously, I have to do this, I have to perform, I have to earn, I have to please him, throw that out the window. He says, it's it's done. That way of relating to God is done. And, And the source of your righteousness and your goodness, all that good stuff that is in you now because of Jesus, that's based on Jesus. And he doesn't change. The the source of your righteousness doesn't change. He can't can't be tarnished. He can't can't fail. And, And that's the basis of your standing before God. Not only that, and we could go on and on, we could do an entire series on the different aspects of God's grace and and the radical standing that we have before him. But Paul also wants you to see that that receiving and standing in the radical grace of God, that's how you're going to bear fruit. And, And that's what I want to hit on this morning. That's how you're going to bear fruit. We, we can't afford to miss this. Some of us get kind of nervous, if we're honest, when we start talking about the radical grace of God. Maybe you, maybe you were raised in a little more of kind of a, a moralistic, kind of rule-based version of Christianity. When I say throw that stuff out, we get a little nervous, some of us. Some of us are like, hallelujah, that's fantastic. I'll just embrace that. Others are like, I'm not so sure. What would happen if we threw all of that stuff out? Would I, can, would I stay on track? What's to keep me from sinning? Would, would I actually bear fruit? Will I be focused in my discipleship if I don't have rules and structures kind of imposed over me? 
telling me what to do and what not to do. It's very easy to say, oh, well, if you remove all of that stuff, I'm afraid that I'll just start sinning because I can. Because I'm free to, because the, the, the grace of God is that radical. But, but Paul's looked deeper into it than that. He says, no, no, no. I know you want to stay under the law because it feels structured and safe, but you will not bear fruit under the law. Jesus says, I, I chose you that you might bear fruit, fruit that will last. He says, you want to bear fruit that will last? You want to see the kingdom of God advance through your life? It's not going to happen under the law. You have to trust him on this almost because there's that religious impulse in our hearts that says we want it or we need it. He says, no, no, no. What he's saying in Romans 7 is that you stand in the radical grace of God. You refuse to go back to your old husband. You're bound to the new, and you'll bear fruit. You, you will bear meaningful fruit for God and the kingdom. And in the cultural moment that we're living in, this is not a tangential issue, if I could say that word right. Okay, This is not like a, a marginal or back burner issue. This is a life or death issue. For if churches are going to survive the next five years, the next 10, the next 20, it will be churches that grasp the radical grace of God and bear fruit as a result of that. If we want to be a vibrant church, a spirit-filled church, a life-imparting church, we have to operate, we have to stand in the radical grace of God. Self-motivation and self-imposed rules and willpower and just trying your best, that will never do the trick. And I think when Christianity is sort of a cultural thing and is sort of watered down and has the support of the culture, we slip into thinking that that's enough. Paul says it's actually through freedom from the law that we become a fruit-bearing people. And we don't keep half. It's not like, oh, let's have a little grace and a little loss. He says, no. He uses the words of death and being discharged. It's a complete process. If we want to bear fruit right in the midst of the desert that is our secular culture, you, me, we, we can bear fruit in any environment, in any culture, if we do this. It says you were released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The old way will not get the job done in the moment that we're living in. Our culture does not need a rule-based religion right now. That's not what it needs. There's plenty of those on offer. Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and secular humanism all have moral codes to live by. There is not a shortage of moral codes in the world. In fact, progressive secular culture has plenty of its own rules to live by. And guess what? They like their rules better than yours. They aren't interested in your rules. But if we're going to bear fruit in our increasingly secular age, if we are to survive and even thrive in it, 
it will be because we've learned to root ourselves in the radical grace of God, and we've thrown off legalism in its entirety, not halfway. We live in a secular, hedonistic culture that says, you do you. This is one of the mantras of our culture. You do you. You're the ultimate authority. You decide what's right and what's wrong. You decide the meaning and purpose of your own life. Don't submit yourself to any external authority or source of truth. You just get out there and pursue pleasure. If it feels good to you, then do that. Be, quote, true to yourself. And notice that this is eerily similar to what the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden. Fresh language on an ancient concept. But people are flocking to this paradigm by the millions in America, inside and outside of the church, we are adopting, we are swallowing this wholesale, adopting it without question. Because in the moment, it, it sounds uh, sleek and trendy and liberating. It does, if we're honest. Even to many of us sitting in the room, we say, I, that sounds like a liberating thing like a good way to live. But the elephant in the room, the thing that our secular culture doesn't want to talk about, is that at the end of the day, that mindset will leave you isolated, anxious, and unsatisfied. It overpromises and it underdelivers. And we don't want to talk about that. No one wants to point that out, but our culture is miserable. If you pursue pleasure in, in a secular wonderland till you are blue in the face all day long, every day, for the rest of your life, you will not be satisfied. And we have millions of people right now who are finding that out the hard way. That they've given up what really mattered, that they've wandered from the truth, and, and they've plunged themselves into things that will not satisfy. It doesn't work. At the end of the day, you lack purpose, you lack direction, you lack joy, you lack peace, you have no form of meaningful identity and you have no hope. The longer you live in that secular wasteland, the more empty you become. But here's the deal. This is where it hits home in terms of restoration in the church. When the typical secular atheist looks at the church, and I believe in the years and decades ahead, millions of them are going to give church another shot because they're going to realize what I've got just isn't working. And when those people come and gaze, metaphorically speaking, through the windows of the church, what they should see is not 
a bunch of people looking back out of the church, laboring under the law and saying, wow, it looks really nice out there. And I, I kind of wish I was out there rather than in here, laboring under the law. But hey, do, do you want to come join us? No, I don't. Instead, when they look in on the church, as I did in my late teens and early 20s when I was an atheist, searching for meaning, searching for purpose, looking in on the church, I, I, I want them to see what I saw. I want them to see a people full of identity and purpose, who know who they are in God, who know what it means to be human, who know what life is really about. I looked in, I said, there's a people who have identity. There's a people who have purpose. There's a people who have joy, even though this world kind of sucks. There's a people who have peace, even though they don't know what tomorrow will bring. There's a people who, who have the sense of hope and even delight in life. There's a people who have light in their eyes because they're freed from the powers of darkness. Secular culture cannot deliver that. It can't deliver any of that. And what it needs to see and to sample in the months and years ahead, in this moment that we're living in, is not a great moral code. That's not the good news. That's not what we have to offer the world. So as we close, the worship team, you can come back up if you want to. I just want to leave you with this question. Do you have the sense that you're standing in the grace of God right now? There's no shame in that. There's no condemnation. There's no you should or you ought to or whatever. But we're just going to take an honest assessment of ourselves before the Lord and just be as honest as we can. Do you have the sense that you're standing in the radical grace of God right now? That that's the grounds beneath your feet. That's the solid rock that you're standing on. That that's the spiritual oxygen in your lungs. Oh man, I come into the presence of God. I breathe in the radical grace. And I breathe out all of the junk that the world has given me. Does that describe your experience as we gather this morning? Or is it something else? Do you feel like you're standing in condemnation? Do you feel like you're standing under the law? Do you feel like you're standing on confusion or ambiguity or I'm not quite sure how to relate to God right now? Because if we aren't rooted in this, everything else is going to wash out to sea. 
if we're not rooted in the radical grace of God and the scandalous nature of the gospel, that he's in your place and you're in his. If you're not rooted in that, I hate to say it, the rest doesn't really matter. Everything else in your faith will slowly erode. The wind and waves of secularization are slamming against the house of the church. And it's time to see what we're built on. Jesus says there's two different things you can build on. The storm will come, the wind will come, the rains will come. And if you're built on the wrong thing, your house collapses. And you can read the studies because hundreds and thousands upon thousands of American churches are collapsing right now. What are you built on? If we get this right, everything else we're going to talk about in the series is going to fall into place. But if we miss this, if we fail to be rooted in the scandalous grace of God, everything else will fall apart. Our prayer lives are going to dry up. Prayer will no longer be a joy coming into the presence of a father who already delights in you. No, no. It will be emptied of its joy. It will be emptied of its faith. It will be emptied of its power. And we will stop praying. And we can talk about scripture, but if you're not rooted in the radical grace of God and, a script, and approaching scripture through it, scripture reading becomes dull obligation. It becomes I have to and I'm not into it, and then I have to and I hate it. And then we stop. It dries up. And biblical community becomes impossible because if all of us come into this room and come into our small groups and anywhere else that we gather and our walls are up because we're we know deep in our heart, I'm just not good enough. If you walk around with that mentality, you will put walls up and biblical community, mutual vulnerability, it becomes impossible. Forget it. We just show up and we put on a fake smile and we say everything's good and we go back to isolation. The radical grace of God will free you from that. You don't have to be afraid. You're good enough. Jesus made you to be good enough. Scripture says he's qualified you. You don't have to be afraid. And, and last of all, our worship becomes empty religious tradition. Hey, stand and sing, I guess so, that's what we do every Sunday as opposed to a living, breathing, spirit-filled response to the radical grace of God. It's better to stand, whether you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus or not, and say, Lord, that's too good to be true. I can barely grasp that. It is hard to receive it, but I'm going to begin celebrating it right now. And maybe as I do, the penny will drop and, and it'll click. I would rather struggle after grasping the radical grace of God than confine ourselves to what's so easily believable 
in the broken human mind and the broken human heart. Brothers and sisters, the churches that fail to operate in the radical grace of God will die. They will not survive the secular age that we are entering into. They will not bring renewal to the culture because they themselves have not been renewed. But the reverse is also true. Go and study history and every renewal and every revival that has happened, and I believe there's one coming. But in every renewal and in every revival, it comes with a change in the atmosphere, and people inside and outside of the church are alerted. It's as if the heavens open, and we can see at last the radical grace of God. So we're going to pray for that right now. And Lane, you can just place something if you want as we sit and, and enjoy him. And you can clear off your laps if you want to and close your Bibles. We're just going to take a moment and we're going to sit and we're going to wait on the Lord. And we're going to practice receiving the radical grace of God. And if you're like me, I don't have time to share my full story, but I saw it as a brand new Christian. There was no question in my mind the day I gave my life to Jesus. This is him and not me. This is free and not earned. He's just pouring it out over me. But if you're anything like me, over the months and years that followed, I slowly tried to get, quote, more serious in my faith tried to move beyond the grace of God, if that's possible. I don't know what's beyond it. There's nothing beyond it. But I tried to. And so if you're anything like me, you need to come back to that. Maybe it starts with, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for, for turning this into a, a rule-based thing. Forgive me for trying to earn, for jumping on that hamster wheel and just spinning and spinning and trying to earn something from you. Lord, would you, would you open up my heart and my mind to receive the radical grace of God right now this morning? So we come now, Jesus, with our pain, with our anxiety, with our doubts, with our fears, with our questions, with some of us with that sense, Lord, I see your grace in scripture. I hear it talked about, but I don't think I've received it yet. It just, it's just too good to be true. It's just beyond me. I don't know how to receive. But Jesus, we come in the simplest way we know how. We come with a mustard seed, and we ask you to move the mountains that sometimes stand in our way. This is not a fun extra. This is not, hey, one, a couple steps to finding more joy in your walk. No, this is, this is life or death for us in the moment that we live in. So as we wait, as we listen, as we pray, as we lay out our lives before you, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and illuminate Jesus for us in this moment. 
Would you bring into view, into heart, into mind those things which feel beyond our reach? Romans 8, if we had read the next chapter, it says he pours out his love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, there's things we can't even stand up and grab for ourselves, but that we can say yes to as you come to us. So we say, come Holy Spirit, pour out your love. Help us to remember again the scandalous nature of your grace. 